Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program is part of a series on Southeast Asia, originally broadcast in 1997. My guest is attorney Linda Kramer, a public defender in Marin County, California, who, in the winter of 1997, returned from a 13-month visit to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where she was the director of the Cambodian Defenders Project. The Cambodian Defenders Project recruits and trains Khmer men and women to serve as public defenders in the criminal courts of Cambodia. Under Cambodian law, a person may not be detained for more than 48 hours without being charged with a crime, nor may be held without trial for longer than six months. In practice, these rights are rarely honored. Without a defender, those in prison are powerless to request compliance. Linda Kramer, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you. Linda, what has happened in uh, the recent political history in Cambodia that drew you, a practicing attorney in uh, the San Francisco area, to Cambodia? Well, um, Cambodia, as we know, has suffered historically by the intervention of um, political forces, extraneous political forces. Um, that is the Khmer Rouge period from 1975 to 79, and then the Vietnamese era from 79 to 91. What happened in 91 is that the Paris Peace Accords were signed, uh, and that, by virtue of those accords, um, a constitutional monarchy was established in Cambodia and the right to free elections. The United Nations went into Cambodia to prepare for elections in the largest peacekeeping mission ever in the history of the United Nations, um, mobilized the country for two years to hold elections. In 1993, those elections happened, and out of that came a, uh, a government composed of two parties, and out of that came a constitution. Out of that constitution, um, certain rights were enumerated, including the right to have a defense in a case where one is charged with a criminal act. So what happened in Cambodia is that uh, as a result of the elections and as a result of the, the constitutional monarchy being established, um, international money started to go into Cambodia for um, redevelopment. Um, the United States, of course, exhibited some interest in contributing to the redevelopment of Cambodia, I believe, and it may be just my personal belief out of a recognition that the United States was a critical factor in causing the destruction of the Cambodian civil um, society. And so I went um, in order to facilitate and be the director of a project that was designed to expand the number of lawyers and defenders in the country. At the time, in 1990, there were only um, four lawyers. And this primarily focused on criminal defense lawyers. Uh, it did. I expanded the program. The program was primarily, when I arrived, was primarily criminal defense. I actually expanded the program to include civil components. We developed a unit uh, for women's litigation. We also developed a separate unit that did uh, litigation related to property. And we developed another unit relating to press law and that is to defend journalists who are charged with 
um, civil and criminal offenses. Well, tell us about the Cambodian Defenders Project. Um, why was there a need for it? What had happened? Well, there were two things. I mean, what had happened was that the the rights finally existed, at least on paper, by dint of the Constitution and the laws that were promulgated um, through the state of Cambodia, the new state of Cambodia, and the United Nations. Those rights, of course, ex existed because there was a need or were created because there was a need. The need um, had been created um, by dint of the, the extreme barbarism of the um, political conditions in that country for some um, for over 20 years. Thousands of people were in prisons in Cambodia um, as a result of either Khmer Rouge activities or actually the um, government, the Vietnamese government. And the reason they were in prison were because of their religious orientation or their political beliefs? Some of them were in for that, others were in for minor offenses. Um, the state of law changed so many times in Cambodia that what might be an offense one year would not be an offense the next year. But they weren't released. They were not released. Um, and there were thousands of people in the prisons um, who, who never had a trial. Some of them had been in prison for five, six, seven, eight, nine years without a trial. Now the right had been created uh, um, to have an, a trial, for instance, and to have an attorney representing you at that trial. We knew that the only way those trials were ever going to happen were, were, was if there was a defense lawyer or somebody to represent the individual who would then motivate the state to hold that trial because there might not be sufficient reasons for the state to act otherwise. So we went in, the program was begun with the idea of developing those individual representatives who would then go in on behalf of an individual, a poor individual, we only represented poor people, but then almost everybody in Cambodia is poor. Um, and we would motivate the government to ask for a trial. Unless you have a representative asking for a trial, you don't get a trial. It isn't like in the American system um, where a trial is scheduled as a matter of course. Here in Cambodia, you have to ask for a trial date. You have to go in and, and, and it felt sometimes like begging for a trial date. You have to establish a certain relationship with the court and with the prosecutor and then convince them to have a trial, and that's what we did. Is there a procedure where people are uh, free on bond or on bail pending a trial like there is here? There wasn't, um, but there is now. Um, until the Cambodian Defenders Project um, developed a motion for release on bail, uh, that nobody had been released pre-trial. Uh, we did the very first motion. Um, we now have um, the courts are aware of and do regularly rule on motions for release on your own recognizance and release on bail. So without connection to an outside advocate, people could be arrested, rightly or wrongly, and uh, stay in jail for an indefinite period of time? Yes. It happened regularly. And it still is happening, to be sure. When the Cambodian defenders would uh, develop uh, lists of those in jail, uh, where, who was there, why they were there, and where they came from. Uh, how did you do this? How did you get the initial raw data? Well, some of that happened before I got into the program. The program started in 1994, 
and I didn't go until 1996. They started taking cases in um, 1995. At that time, there was um, some cooperation by the Minister of Justice. And reports are required. It's required to file a report from each prison in each province, and there are some 20 provinces has a prison. Um, they must file a report with the Minister of Justice um, as to who is in the prison. And those lists were obtained from the Minister of Justice for some of the provinces. So that's, that's how we started out. Men and women in separate prisons? No. They're in, the prisons are... Or segregated? They're segregated. Them. They are segregated. But it's usually the same building. I visited um, a number of the prisons in Cambodia when I was there. Tell us what you saw. Well, it just about brings tears to my eyes. It's um, absolute, um, total filth, um, lack of food. Um, the, the good part of that is that um, prisoners are allowed visit, visits from their family frequently um, for the very reason that those families bring them food. Um, and otherwise, prisoners die. There isn't sufficient food to feed people. What they, the only food um, that the prison provides is rice, and oftentimes one piece of fish is used to cook um, 40 or 50 or 60 pounds of rice in a broth that's thin and, you know, with one fish in there. Um, I can't remember exactly the figure now. I think it's something like about 15 cents a day is what the prison has to spend on a prisoner. Um, the budget, the prison budget, um, is very, very, very low. Um, so what I saw was... Uh, on the one hand, very dispiriting um, in that the poverty uh, uh, manifested in the society is, of course, mirrored in the prisons. On the other hand, the other thing I saw was that because so many people are in prison for such, actually such trifling offenses, um, there is a relative amount of freedom within the prison walls. Uh, some of the, it's often acreage, Acreage is pretty significant, and the prisoners have maybe a garden outside. The housing, most of them spend most of their time outside because of the heat. Uh, prisoners' cell can be decorated with all kinds of things from home. Um, a lot of religious um, symbols are present, a lot of Buddhas and um, incense burners and things that they get from their family, and that's all allowed. That's very unlike an American prison um, where you have... Uh, you have your television and you have a few books, um, but you're, you're not allowed um, to leave your cell whenever you want to walk around outside, mix with the others, and come on back in. Um, the, also, when I was at the pr one prison in particular, um, some medical services were being provided. And what it is outside, a little table under a tree, uh, just under a palm tree, and people stand in line, and um, they medics... Uh, deliver a few drugs. There's no, there are no hospitals at the prisons. When I did see somebody t being taken to a hospital um, because he was dying, he was taken on a motorcycle. And there was one guard in front of him. He was held up in the middle and a guard behind him, and he was basically dying right then. And they drove off down the street on this little motorcycle. And having worked in the criminal justice system in the United States for 20 years, I know the kind of um, armoring that we have around prisons, um, the kind of guard systems and armored cars, and the prisoners only taken to a hospital if they're preceded. There's one car ahead of them, and they're in a car, and they're shackled, and 
um, from both the waist and feet and hands, and then there's a car behind them with another four guards. So it was actually kind of funny to see this prisoner go off on a little motorcycle to the hospital. So there's, it's a combination of poverty and then lack of restriction because uh, many of the prisoners are not actually very serious criminals. You also make it sound as if the level of violence within the prison is much lower than here. It is actually within the prison. Um, much higher level of violence in the prisons here. And it's a, that's an interesting anomaly um, because uh, while, like I say, many of the prisoners are in on um, what we consider to be fairly lightweight offenses, for instance, a petty theft um, or a small fraud of a hundred, couple of hundred dollars, there also are a lot of murders in Cambodia, very, very high incidence of murders. Um, so one would almost think that there so many people involved in murder that they would be really dangerous in the prisons. But in fact, many of the murders are relationship murders or some small-time political murders. I'm not very dangerous people. Let's um, talk about the human rights violations and uh, what you, I think, characterize as corruption within the Cambodian government. But first, I want to say that I'm talking with attorney Linda Kramer, who is the director of the Cambodian Defenders Project in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, uh, for approximately 13 months, ending in the fall of 1996. Linda, what has been going on in uh, the Cambodian government with regard to uh, uh, corruption that affects the safety of people like yourself when you're there? Well, it's hard to say what exactly has been going on within the government. Uh, I can tell you that during the period of time I was there, uh, there were a number of uh, perceived threats to the security of foreigners in the country. And there were at least two occasions where it had, was predicted that there would be the declaration of martial law. Uh, the Cambodian government faces a number of criticisms from the international community uh, for its dealings with money and its dealings with human rights issues. Uh, and during the time that I was there, in particular the last six months, there was a surge of violence against foreigners. There was some concern that this was an organized effort um, for the purpose of perhaps convincing foreigners that they should not engage in any kind of criticism of the government. Not that an individual foreigner would necessarily do that, but the United States government had done that, and so the French government criticized Cambodia for some of its um, human rights violations. So, and those violations occurred around the trial and um, the uh, conviction of a, an opposition, not an opposition party leader, but the Funzenpec party leader and his ultimate exile into France. So it, it appeared that uh, the coalition government during the time that I was in Cambodia had lost its coalition. Um, that is, it, it had separated and was supposed to be working together and wasn't. When it wasn't successfully working together, um, it started to, uh, they started to pit themselves against each other and uh, resulted in the exile of one of the Funzenpec leaders. That was what the United States government was somewhat critical of and the French government critical of the lack of 
civil respect for civil liberties in the trial of that particular person in his exile, and then that what that did is filtered down into the way the government treated foreigners in the country. Did that have a personal effect on you? Mm, yes, it did. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I uh, experienced it in in terms of personal danger. I mean, all of my expatriate staff except for me, for instance, was robbed at gunpoint. Everybody um, suffered that. I uh, had a particularly high level of security available to me, which I took avail of and had secure security guards with me when I walked in the city or walked from my office to my house. That the other expatriate staff did not have? No, they did not have that. Why did you have it? I had it because of my role as director of the organization. You were seen as a point person who was more vulnerable? Perhaps. Um, some of the work that we were doing in the organization uh, was, for instance, in the defense of journalists who were writing articles um, uh, representing the opposition point of view. During the time that I was in Cambodia, also a third party developed, which is seen sort of as a people's party. Uh, and that came out of the candidacy of Sam Rainsy, who is a uh, politician with a real interest in civil liberties and promoting civil liberties. Uh, we represented um, several journalists who wrote articles that were uh, critical of the government, of the coalition government, critical of activities within the government, and represented a view of of Rancy's party. Um, so we were, and I did all the training in that unit, in the press unit. We, I was the person that was present in the Supreme Court when we argued those cases in the Supreme Court. Did you actually make the arguments? No, I was not allowed to. It was the advocates that made the arguments. I trained them, but the nationalists um, did all the practicing of law. Foreigners are not allowed to practice law in Cambodia. And, but I was present at the arguments. And the first argument that we made in the Supreme Court, there were over 400 military present at the courtroom. In the um, courtroom? Uh, either in the courtroom or right outside the courtroom at the windows, all of them with AK-47s uh, leaning up against their temples and watching or with their AK-47s pointing into the courtroom. It was one of the most troubling moments I've ever experienced in the practice of law. What was the purpose of having this uh, armament? Uh, what were they seeking to protect the in, government, in their mind? The government was worried that a conviction of a journalist would result in a riot uh, in Phnom Penh. And so they wanted to be able to deliver, if the conviction of this journalist was affirmed by the Supreme Court, they wanted to deliver him to the prison. Uh, quickly and uh, without any riotous incidents. There was considerable press around these cases in Cambodia, a lot of international press and a lot of international attention because it was the first time that a journalist had been convicted um, in peacetime. Cambodia. What had he been convicted of? It was publishing an article that was uh, that questioned the, the government, um, criticized the government. And what did the Supreme Court do? They affirmed the conviction. And the journalist? Went to prison. And um, the king granted amnesty. We did do a, a petition to the king for amnesty. 
and the king did grant amnesty, as he did in um, two other cases that we uh, represented journalists in during the time I was there. What was the uh, criticism of the government? The specific criticism? Oh, the criticism was about corruption within the government, uh, which is the international criticism of Cambodia. It's an and it's pretty much accepted that there is corruption within the government. So I don't remember the specific facts that were alleged in the articles. Um, one, of, one of the very interesting things about the press cases um, was that there was, there was actually a very low level of journalism in the country. Um, one of the things that we did was we worked with the um, Khmer Journalists Association to help train the journalists so that they could write better. Um, as we all know, as particularly as lawyers, and I know Barry, you're a lawyer, so um, we learn how to say things carefully. We can make our criticism well um, and better if we couch it in words that are um, carefully planned and carefully executed. And instead of yelling an epithet at somebody, you describe, um, you know, factually um, the problems that that person is involved in and you, you, you justify your criticism. What was happening in the journalism there is there's a very low level of writing. Uh, and so they were easily subject to the kind of criticism um, that the government was engaging in, which included putting them in prison. So we wanted to lift up the level of journalism as well as lift up the level of uh, advocacy. Who were the uh, trainees? Where did they come from? They came from all uh, aspects of the society, but primarily the defenders uh, had worked in human rights agencies um, throughout Cambodia and during the transition period and had been in the camps um, outside of Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge period. Um, that is, they were oftentimes, they were, many of them were refugees. Um, they ranged in age from, I think the youngest was 24, and the oldest was in his late 50s. And this was all in English? No, no, it was all done in, in the Cambodian language, in which Khmer. You, which you speak or no, you have an interpreter? No, I don't speak it. I, I, I know a few words now, but I had, I had interpreters. Um, we had interpreters at the project. Uh, although I would have liked to have learned more Khmer during the time I was there, I had one reason that it would be somewhat useless is that the level at which I had to communicate with people about legal concepts um, would have been impossible for me to attain in the time I was there. So I used translators. Um, although a number of the um, principal uh, defenders uh, did speak English too. Linda, what went into your decision to leave after 13 months and not stay longer? Uh, well, I had taken a leave of absence from my job in, in Marin County and... It, Where you work as a public defender. Yes, and I felt um, extreme gratitude towards Marin County for giving me this time already. And I knew that any time that I'm gone, other people have to work harder um, to do the work since I'm one of the senior attorneys at that office. So I felt an obligation to come back. Um, secondly, the uh, the danger level was very high, and um, it, it, I've, I left Cambodia with a much greater appreciation for what people live, how people live in the in the slums of America, um, areas where guns are shot all the time, where you know people are 
using using guns frequently. And in my neighborhood in Phnom Penh, there was always gunfire. You know, every night I couldn't go out of my um, compound at night. I had to have a guard um, every night. And I, I have to admit, I got tired of that. I got tired of living with that level of insecurity. And then thirdly, it was a time for a new era of the project. And when I went into the project, it, uh, it, it had been suffering considerably. Um, and it, it was experiencing extreme problems to the point of almost falling apart. And I was brought in to try and bring the project back together. And in order to do that, uh, I had to wage some pretty significant battles in the country. And we did successfully bring the project back together. Um, we did, the project did grow, and the project did increase in its funding. But I felt, too, I had come in to be a peacemaker and ended up having to be a warrior, and that they needed a peacemaker. The climatic conditions are quite different from what we're used to here in North America. Tell us, uh, just briefly, if you will, uh, the weather, the rains, the monsoons, the immediate effect. Yeah, you feel the weather all the time in Cambodia. There's not a moment that you don't feel weather. It's very different than here in California when we can probably, many days, we can just not even think about the weather at all. Um, and rain in California is nothing compared to the monsoons of Cambodia, which there are two seasons of, cam- of monsoons. When the monsoons hit there, um, because of the deficiencies in their sewer system and the roads, the rain often within oh, an hour will build up to a foot. Within two hours, will build up to a foot and a half or two feet high. Water on the ground that on you have ground, to go through to That move. you have to walk through to get home. And there were numerous times when I would walk through water having to hold my skirt up as high as I could to walk through this brown swirling mass. And you had to have tevas on. That's the only shoes that would work because you had to have something that was tied onto your feet that wouldn't move and uh, would make it through the, the dirt and the mud. And the temperature and humidity was? Hot, 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 and hotter. What are the numbers? <laughs> it always felt like it was over 100, but that probably was just because the humidity was so high. The humidity is always in the 80s and 90%. Um, and the temperature would get to be 106, 110 degrees. Uh, it was really hot, hotter than anything I had ever experienced before. Well, Linda Kramer, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Yeah, I just, well, I just finished two books um, by Andrew Weil, Spontaneous Healing uh, and Natural Healing. And they are fascinating books about the... Um, Dr. Wiles' experience as a botanist and as a doctor in the United States and um, his philosophy of, of building up immune system, the natural immune system of the body. And they're, they're great, I reckon. Linda Kramer is a public defender in Marin County, California. In 1995 and 1996, she worked in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, as the director of the Cambodian Defenders Project. The books that Linda Kramer recommends are Spontaneous Healing and Natural Healing by Andrew White. Other programs about Southeast Asia, which you may enjoy, are with Daniel Ellsberg discussing the Pentagon Papers and Vietnam, and Wayne Knight, a Mendocino County artist 
who was also associated with the Cambodian Defenders Project. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.